It's my great joy to invite you to open your copy of God's perfect and precious Word to 1 Chronicles chapter 17. As you do that, um, you know, we spent a lot of time last week on our 100th year anniversary talking about uh, the way God has blessed this church in the past, and rightly so. But as I was sitting there this morning, um, I was thinking about just if you think about the things this morning, uh, how incredibly uh, blessed we are as a congregation today. If there is a better church pianist in anywhere in the world, I don't know who they are. Uh, Randy Westbrook uh, leads us uh, in ways that uh, help us worship the Lord in uh, uh, beautiful, beautiful music and raises our thoughts to the truth, beauty, and goodness of God, even as we enjoy the beauty and goodness and the truth proclaimed uh, as he plays. Uh, we sung a song this morning that Pastor Nate wrote that is one of my favorite songs. Uh, three men, three young men who read Scripture this morning, three young ministers of the Gospel who served this church with everything they've got. As the offering was being taken up, some of the men who were taking the offering uh, have been at this church a long, long time, and I never see them take up the offering that I don't remember if they had not been a stabilizing force through difficult days in this church, I would not be here today. We would not be here today. God has blessed us incredibly, amazingly so, not only in the past, but in the present. May that spur us on to live courageously as we serve Him now. First Chronicles chapter 17. I'm just going to read two verses as we start, and we're going to quickly move through this whole chapter and get sort of an overall view and see how it works together. I'll ask you to stand in reverence for the reading of the perfect words of our sovereign God. First Chronicles chapter 17, verses 16 and 17. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And this was a small thing in your eyes, O God. You have spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come and have shown me future generations, O Lord God. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You so much for this portion of Your Word. And Lord, I pray that You help us to see that all of our hope is bound up in Your work, in Your grace, in Your covenant promise. And Lord, help us to see how that should make us live courageously here and now. And we pray it in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen. You may be seated. Goliath is dead. Saul is dead. Countless Philistines are dead. But David is alive. He had tended his father's sheep just a few miles away from where he presently is in Jerusalem. He was the most unimpressive of Jesse's sons by outward appearance. And yet, here David is. 
He's in Jerusalem, and he's in Jerusalem as king. King of a united kingdom. He has dealt with the Philistines. He has set up the capital city in Jerusalem. He has brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. All these things are coming together under David's leadership. And recently, he has been involved in the process of building a house or a kingly palace. Amazing things are happening. And as David looks around and evaluates all that's going on and all that has happened, how God took him from being a shepherd boy out in the field to Bethlehem to reigning as king over Israel, he starts dreaming dreams. He starts thinking about what he can do now in the place he sits, the authority that he has by his office, the resources that are available. What can he do to serve God? And he comes up with a plan, a good plan, a dream, something that he could do to the glory of God. And we read about that good plan in chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. Look with me there. Now, when David lived in his house, David said to Nathan the prophet, Behold, I, I is emphatic here, I dwell in a house of cedar. But the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. It, it is under a portable tabernacle. It's under a tent. David looks around and he says, look at what God has done. Look at the way He has blessed me. And I have recently built a kingly palace here in Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant, which goes in the place that symbolizes the very presence of God among the people, is under a tent. While I live in a house of cedar. Now, cedar house doesn't sound all that impressive to us, but this meant that it would have been a very expensive house. That it was built out of the finest things. And David says within himself, it's not right. This is not good. I should not dwell in a nicer place than the Ark of the Covenant. What, what I'll do is I will build a house for the Ark of the Covenant. I have a dream of an amazing temple. A temple where God is worshipped. And at the heart of the temple is the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies there is the Ark of the Covenant. How great will it be? He thinks about all of the positives of having a, a visible symbol of the presence of God that in some way declares the majesty and greatness of God by its own reflective majesty. How he can solidify the worship of the true and living God. How, how he can entrench this visible symbol of God's presence among the people. After all, in ancient Near Eastern culture, a visible sign of kingly success was the building of a temple in the name of the God of the King. And yet David knows that there is but one God. There is but one Lord. Lord, Yahweh, King of Kings. Should He not have a temple that declares that He has done this? 
that it is not what David has done. He didn't bring himself out of the fields watching the sheep and place him as king in Jerusalem. This is what God has done. It clearly seems to be a good plan. But here's what I want you to see. Because something is a good plan, a good thing, a good dream, that does not mean that it's God's plan. A good plan is not necessarily a God plan. If you'll notice in the text in verse 2, and Nathan said to David, do all that is in your heart. For God is with you. Nathan the prophet, who's certainly willing to confront David, says this sounds great. That you have within your heart a desire to glorify and honor God. To magnify His name. Go for it. He tells him to, to, to start putting the plan into action. And yet, though it is a good plan, we see that God changes the direction. God speaks of His plan, beginning in verse 3. But the same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, It is not you, that's emphatic, It is not you who will build a house for me to dwell in. Now, a couple of things we've got to know here. He rejects David's plan to build the temple. But he is clearly not rejecting David. For the term my servant just sounds perfunctory to us, but in reality it's a title. It's a way of speaking of David as God's own. He is honoring David by calling him my servant. The language will come up again and again. He is showing that he accepts David. That David is his. That he has put him on the throne. Now get this. He is rejecting David's good plan. But he's not rejecting David. What he tells him here is, it's not a bad idea, it's just not going to happen through you. You are not going to be the one who builds the temple. The building of the temple was not forbidden. In fact, God's going to promise that it's going to happen. But the timing here was rejected. It was not David who would build it. Now, in verses 5 and 6, Clearly, with what God reveals to Nathan, he is calling for David to trust his plan. Trust me. You've had a good idea. I've got a better idea. There's a way that seems right to you. But I know the way that is best. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. For I have not lived in a house since the day I was brought up, since the day I brought up Israel to this day. But I've gone from tent to tent, from dwelling to dwelling, meaning he was going with the people, traveling with the people. In all the places where I have moved with all Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel 
whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? In other words, he's saying, I've not commanded this to happen. This is not going to unfold in this way because it's not my plan right now. This is not the time. And then he, what he does at this point is he reminds Nathan to remind David about exactly what has happened. The issue has always been the timing of God. God was the one who called David out of the fields watching sheep to be the shepherd of Israel, to defeat Goliath, to defeat the Philistines, to unite the empire. God is the one who has done this. It is His timing. Trust my plan, God says, because you remember my grace. Look with me at verses 7 through 10. Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts. And by the way, it's about to be uh, 19, I, I mean, uh, uh, 14 I wills, or I took, I have, I. Here's what God says. Thus say, says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep to be prince over my people Israel, our king. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And I and will plant them that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall waste them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will subdue your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. God flips it on its head. You, you have a good plan. You have a desire. You want to build for me a house. No, you're not going to build it. I'm going to build you a house. I am the one who called you out of the field watching the sheep. That is what I have done. I am the one that have given you victory in battle. I am the one who's promised that I am going to do more through your life than you could have ever imagined. Now, you don't completely understand the plan, but I'm going to do it, the Lord says. Get the principle. What God does for David takes precedence over what David wants to do for God. And the same is true for you. Some of you had some sort of plans for your life, plans for your spiritual life. And you look at your life today and you say, they didn't happen. This is not the way I drew it up. And you're marked by a sense of almost depression that your life is not what you planned it would be. Your life is not what you dreamed it would be. But God's plan of what He is doing for you takes precedence over your plan of what you plan to do for Him. And His plan is better even when it's hard to see here and now. 
He's going to tell David, your son's going to build the temple. And David has to be thinking. Here I am. I've got the resources. We're in Jerusalem. Why can't I do it? What's the answer to that? Because it's not God's plan. And that's okay. Now later on, we're going to see that David's role was to be a kingly warrior, not a kingly builder. But God doesn't tell him that right now. God doesn't explain it to him. He just communicates to him the reality. You would not be king in Israel apart from me. You would not have won on the battlefield apart from me. So now is not the time for you to tell me the way things have to unfold. My plan takes precedence even over your good plans. By the way, in this, in this section, uses the word, in this chapter, it uses the word house 13 times, forever eight times, and I will or I did 14 times. It tells us what's going on in the chapter. First Chronicles 17 is about more than the events going on here. It's about forever. It's about eternity. And eternity is what God is doing. And so He has plans with eternity in mind. If you're a really good thinker and planner, you can think about things with sort of decades in mind. God's plans always have a complete, accurate picture of eternity in mind. If you knew everything God knows, you would do things exactly the way God does it. And if you don't believe that, you're not trusting God, you're trying to compete with God. And that's a dangerous place to be. You see, what we are called to do is to embrace our role. David had to embrace his role as a shepherd out in the fields in Bethlehem. David had to embrace his role as he was anointed king of Israel, secretly anointed, and he was king even before people recognized him as king, but now he's king. And so now David has to embrace his role as the one who will not build the temple. But God did it all. You see, when you trust in God's plan and remember His grace, then you embrace your role. If you refuse to embrace your role, it's because you're not fixated on grace and you're trying to develop your own plan. See the way that works? Embrace your role. Look at verses 11 through 14. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, when you're dead, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me. And I will establish His throne forever. I will be to Him a Father, and He shall be to me a Son. Meaning, I've adopted the kingly Davidic line into my family. I am doing this. I own this. You are my children. I am a Father, and you are my Son. Then he continues in verse 13, I will not, I will not take my steadfast love from Him, Steadfast love, hesed, uh, kind of like the word uh, we use for grace in the New Testament. 
the covenant love of God, the, 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 the never-ending love of God, the steadfast love from Him as I took it from Him who was before you, meaning Saul, but I will confirm Him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and His throne will be established forever. David, I am building a house for you. And by the way, this is a play on words. David says, I'm going to build a house for God, a a temple for God. God says, no, I'm going to build a house for you. A house in terms of a dynasty, a a, a kingly line. You hear the, the term for a king, the house of Windsor. This is the house of David. Solomon would sit on the throne, but it's a promise forever. So here in 1 Chronicles 17, the promise extends way out beyond Solomon himself. He says, the house I am building for you is a dynasty. It is a kingdom. And it is the line that's going to bring my son. You are my adopted sons. My son, who will be the Savior, the King, the Prophet, the Priest, the Sacrifice, will come from this line. Do you see the promises? I'll raise up your offspring. I'll establish his throne. I will be father. I will never take my love away. And I will set him over the kingdom forever. The house of the Lord is an eternal dynasty with an eternal sonship and eternal love or grace. This is the Davidic covenant, which is a continuation of the Abrahamic promise, the Abrahamic covenant, which is a continuation of the very beginning of the fall into sin, where there's a promise that there will be a seed born who will crush the head of the serpent. This is God keeping his promise. And God says, David, I'm going to keep it through you, through your line. Matthew 1.1, the Gospel of Matthew says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 33, the passage about the birth of Christ. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Do you see what's going on here? David, my plans have eternity in mind. Your role is not what you thought it was but it fits in my plan. Well, in verse 15, it tells us that Nathan told all these things to David in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. In other words, David told him everything. Everything. So here's my question. So was David's plan wrong? Was his dream presumptuous? Should he have not planned to do that? Was it a matter that David wasn't waiting? That he wasn't patient? That he was running ahead of God? Was David's plan to build a house, a temple, 
for the Ark of the Covenant for God, was that a good thing or a bad thing? God said no, but which was it? In Second Chronicles chapter 6, verses 7-9, through 9, it clears it up for us. By the way, originally the, the Chronicles are one book. It's divided here for convenience. But in Second Chronicles uh, chapter 6, beginning verse 7, it says this, Now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, Whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, it is not you who shall build this house, but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. Did you hear it? You did well that it was in your heart. It was a good thing. David had a good impulse. It was a desire to honor God. It was an act of faith. But we know this. You will not be blessed by the performance of your hands, but by the faithfulness of your heart. Do you see that? David's like, I can do this. And and, yes, but, but no. But the fact he wanted to do it, the fact that he was dreaming of ways to glorify and honor God was a good thing. But his good plan was not God's plan. When we know that is true, then we can willingly embrace God's plan even when it's different from our good plans. David was right to plan, to dream, as long as he was serving the Lord and not serving his plan or his dream. Do you see that? If he would have been apathetic, if he'd have been sitting back, if he would not have been thinking ways to honor God, that would have dishonored God. But he was dreaming about what he could do to the glory of God. He was planning, but he can't take a good plan and serve it. His plans are not Lord. His dreams are not Lord. There's a Lord God in heaven. So it's a good thing that he planned. It's a good thing that he dreamed as long as that dream was a way to serve the Lord. If it is, it's okay when God redirects. If it's not okay when God redirects, it's because we're not serving the Lord. We're serving the plan. The dream. Do you see how practical this is? How important this is? It's easy for us to turn a good thing into an idol. When we make a good thing a God thing, now we're rebelling against the true and living God. There's people here today in all kinds of situations. One of the deals that I tell pastors all the time is at least fail. Right? You've got these guys and they're pastoring these churches and they just don't seem to have the courage to do anything. So they just try to figure out what they can do and, and, and try to stay safe. And, and that's the worst case. At least fail. At least push, push away and say, no, y'all, come over here. They might all say no, but do it. 
And if God is going to redirect you, He can redirect you. That's fine. But at least be on the march for God. At least plan. But it's not just true of church leaders. It's also true of our lives. Some of you in this room, you had a plan. A dream for children. A good thing. But it hasn't happened. Some of you in this room thought that you'd be married by now. Marriage is a good thing, but you're not. Some always thought that you would end up in a marriage that was long-lasting and a model marriage, and now you sit in this room, and because of whatever circumstances, you're not married anymore. Wanting a good marriage is a good thing. Some of you plan to be a missionary. And yet, for all kinds of reasons, it hasn't happened. Maybe your aging parents need you to, needed you to care for them. Maybe your child had health problems that you didn't anticipate that keeps you from going. Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's something else. Some circumstance. It's a good thing to want to be a missionary. Some of you dreamed of a certain career. And you'd already committed in your heart and mind that this is how you were going to honor God in this career. And yet you find yourself in a totally different career. And not even one that you enjoy. Or maybe you were in that career. And you were let go. And now you're regrouping at an age where you thought you'd be thriving. It's a good thing to want a good career. Some dreamed of adopting but the referral just hasn't come. It doesn't seem like it's going to come. Wanting to adopt is a good thing. You see, if all of those plans were born out of a desire to honor and serve God, to magnify Him as Lord, to glorify Him, then they are good things. But if those plans are really to honor and serve God, then you will embrace God's plan even when those good plans don't come to pass. Do you see that? It doesn't mean that you didn't desire a good thing. What it means is that there's a God in heaven and you're not Him. And He has acted in a way that declares He is worthy of your trust now and forever. Let me, let me put it this way with a familiar verse. A Proverbs that really crystallizes this whole message. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of a man plans his way. The heart. The longings. The heart of a man plans his way. This is not talking about negative stuff. This is a good plan. It's advocating this sort of planning. The heart of a man, just like the heart of David. The heart of David was to build a temple. God said no. But the fact that he longed to was a good thing. The heart of a man makes his plan. There's all kinds of good things on the end of that plan. But then the second half of the proverb says, but the Lord establishes His steps or directs His steps. Now that's a God plan. And God plan is not always an exact concert with your good plans. Do you see that? It, it, it doesn't mean 
that the heart making a plan is a bad thing. It means that you don't serve the plan you make in your heart. You serve God, the Lord. The One who sent His own Son to die on a cross for your sins. And it's okay for the Lord to direct or establish your steps. Even if those steps go a different direction than you would have gone. And by the way, you ought to tell yourself every day, His plan is better. His plan is better. See, the battleground for that is not in the gigantic moments. The battleground for that is in traffic. Or when you drop the bowl. Or when the kids aren't ready on time. See, the, the Lord's plan is best. There has never been a circumstance that keeps you from glorifying God unless you choose not to glorify God because your plans are frustrated. Philip Brooks, a pastor of another generation, somebody said, you, you know, you seem really frustrated. He said, I am because I'm in a hurry, but God's not. That's the way we are a lot. See, but it's getting this good plan and God plan in the right order and in the right relationship that leads to a courageous life. That's what we see in verses 16 through 27. Really, the most important part of this I want to focus on is right here at the beginning. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And this was a small thing in your eyes, O God. You have spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come and have shown me future generations, O Lord God. In other words, David, who was ready to get busy building the house, building the temple, one of the most strategic things he ever did, one of the most important things he ever did, was when God said no, he sat out in the presence of God. And prayed. And the first thing he says is exactly what God told him to think about. Trust my plan. Remember my grace. Embrace your role. The first thing he says, who am I that all of this has happened? Who am I? I don't deserve any of this. This is grace. And then he says, what you have done for me to you is a small thing. It boggles my mind, but to you it's a small thing. You've not only made a promise to me, you made a promise to my line in future generations. Who am I to be involved in this? By the way, the hymn Amazing Grace, John Newton was preaching 1 Chronicles 17. He would turn passages into verse to try to help his not very highly educated congregation sort of learn the Word in, in unique ways. And he wrote Amazing Grace based on this chapter. And he didn't call it Amazing Grace. He face review and expectations. And it wasn't very popular. It was printed in the only hymn book in hymn number 41 and it was virtually ignored until some time later. But these two verses here, 16 and 17, he says this is, this is David coming face to face with amazing grace. Amazing grace that has transformed his life. Here's the deal. 
when we think of courage, we tend to think of, okay, there's a huge thing, a bold thing, a public action. Will I have the courage to step out and do this bold thing? And that's true. That does demand courage. It does take courage to do that. But we don't think about the other side of courage. Do you have the courage to have a plan rejected? Do you have the courage to have a dream not come to pass? Do you have the courage to have a door closed and not lose any sense of your enthusiasm and passion for God? Because you believe that what God is going to do and the path He's going to lead you is better and greater. Remember what courage is? Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is acting on the premise that there is something more important than fear. And for Christians, for people who worship the true and living God, it's not something more important than fear. It's someone more important than fear. And sometimes that means I've got a bold public act I've got to take. Let me step out and do it. And sometimes that means this is what I've dreamed of doing for God. And it doesn't come to pass. Do you have the courage to do that? To serve God without the notoriety. Without the public recognition. Do you have the courage not to be somebody but to be faithful where He places you. I never read 16 and 17 that I don't think about faithful moms in a house all day. Nobody's clapping when they change the diapers. Nobody's saying you're an amazing counselor when they deal with the kids' problems. But they have the courage to not be somebody in the public eye to the glory of God. You see, that takes courage as well. Because when your identity is in Christ, you're willing to do the public deed and accept the consequences. But when your identity is Christ, you don't need the public recognition to understand your life matters. David fought battles to the glory of God. And now David sits down to the glory of God. And he says, it's a great thing that Solomon will build the temple instead of me. Your good plan cannot satisfy you. God's plan always satisfies. Look beginning at 18. And what more can David say to you for honoring your servant? In other words, God rejecting His good plan is not God rejecting him. God's honoring him. For you know your servant, for your servant's sake, O Lord, and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness in making known all these great things. There is none like you, O Lord. There is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. 
And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making for yourself a name great and awesome things and driving out the nations before your people whom you redeemed in Egypt? In other words, this didn't start with me. I'm not just looking to the future. I'm looking to the past. Your greatness has been on display. You have a track record. Verse 22, and you made your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord, let the word that you have spoken concerning your servant, concerning his house, be established forever. And do, uh, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be established and magnified forever, saying, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel is Israel's God. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build a house for him. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray before you. Get that? He had to have courage to go on the battlefield to face Goliath. And now he acknowledges that God, because of His covenant grace, has given him the courage to sit down, not build the temple, and pray. You have given me the courage for my dream not to come through. Because I don't live for my dream, I live for you. Look how it ends. Verse 26 and 27. And now, O Lord, You are God and You have promised this good thing to Your servant. It's a good thing. Now You have been pleased. The word means determined. You have been pleased to bless the house of Your servant that it may continue forever before You. For it is You, O Lord, who have blessed and it is blessed forever. Powerful language. Courage. The someone greater than fear. And that someone is loaded with eternal grace. That someone is the God who's redeeming His people. That someone keeps this line till Jesus Himself sits on the Davidic throne forever and ever. That someone loaded with eternal grace is for those who trust in Him. We would have never drawn up that plan, but that is the God plan. And it's better than any of our good plans. And by the way, that hymn that John Newton wrote, most famous hymn in the history of the world, wrote it in 1773 for a New Year's sermon. He was a former slave trader. He talked about jointing slaves, which means you start out at their extremities and take a cleaver and you chop off at all the joints. So the body remains functioning till almost the very end. And then they would take the head and throw it down in the galleys where the slaves were chained as a warning to stay in line. That's who he was. But he was transformed by amazing grace. His sermon on First Chronicles 17, when I looked at the outline, thought, that's probably better than mine. He told his congregation to look back. Look back at all that God has done. That's what David is called to do. He called him to look around. Look around in where God has placed him here and now. And then he told his congregation to look ahead. These are forever promises of God. That's how you get the courage to face what you need to face. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound 
that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Now get this. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace those fears relieved. Courage. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures." Yes, when this flesh and heart shall fail and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine. But God who called me here below will be forever mine. There's a verse that we sing that I didn't read because John Newton didn't write it. The former slave trader who wrote this hymn that was ignored in England had that hymn travel across the Atlantic and end up in the United States of America. And there were slaves who loved to sing it. In fact, it ended up published in a book called Plantation Hymns that was used among the slaves. And the former slave trader who wrote a song about God's amazing grace, strengthened slaves who added this verse to it. And I think that Newton would have said, Amen. It's a better song with this verse. When we've been here 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Those slaves out in those fields at that plantation were not living out their dream. It was not what they had planned. Their plan had not come to pass. But they had courage. And the former slave trader's song pointed them to that gospel courage. And they sang with joy in the worst of circumstances. Because they believed that their life was defined not by the work of their hands, but their life was defined by the faithfulness of their heart. And so they sung and had the courage to sing Amazing Grace. Do you? Let's pray.